Father in heaven, we just approach you and, and ask for your blessing upon your word today. May it be taught clearly. May we rejoice again that we have a scapegoat, that we have a high priest, that we have a sacrifice, and that we have a mercy seat provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, let's pick it up now. Exodus 25, verse 10. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, and one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out, you shall overlay it, and you shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet, and two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward. Covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another, the faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. By testimony, he's talking there about the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Now, we are coming to our very last study in our series, Beholding Christ in Exodus. And we've seen Christ in many different places in the book of Exodus. But we're going to come to the climax this morning. The climax. We've saved the best to last for today. Um, we're going to look at the Ark of the Covenant. And it is impossible for me to overstate the importance of the Ark of the Covenant. Let me say that again. It's impossible for me to overstate the importance of this piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. We see that because, first of all, it was the only object that was in the Holy of Holies. In the outer courts, you had two objects, the altar and the laver. In the holy place, you had three objects, the table, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. Well, inside of the Holy of Holies, the place of God's very presence, there was only one piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. It was also the only object that was transferred from the tabernacle into the temple after Solomon built the temple. All of the other objects were recreated, but that was the only one that was transferred intact. And it was also, as you look at Exodus 25, when God tells them to build this tabernacle, it was the very first thing he tells them to build. He gives the instructions for it before he gives instructions for building anything else. So on God's mind, this was it. This was the thing that was most closely connected with himself. And as we've been looking at the, the tabernacle system, we've seen that it, it illustrates for us the sinner's approach to God. The fence around the tabernacle illustrates our separation from God. The bronze altar represents our salvation 
in Christ. The bronze laver represents our sanctification in Christ. The table of showbread represents our satisfaction in Christ. The lampstand, Christ as our illumination. The altar of incense represents Christ as our intercessor. And then beyond the veil, into the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat, that represents our glorification when we stand together with Christ face to face for all eternity in His immediate presence with nothing barring. Sin is gone. Death is gone. All the enemies are gone and we're with Jesus Christ forever face to face. So the tabernacle reveals the sinner's approach to God. It also reveals things about Jesus. Jesus is Savior, Sanctifier, Satisfier, Enlightener, Intercessor, and Sovereign King. But this morning, as I thought about the Ark of the Covenant, I thought, you know, there's really no way of doing it justice unless we go to Leviticus chapter 16. Because no human being could ever approach the Ark of the Covenant except for this one special holy day called the Day of Atonement. And Leviticus chapter 16 gives all of the ritual for that particular day. And so I want to spend really our time this morning in that chapter. So if you will, would you turn over with me to Leviticus chapter 16? The Day of Atonement is called by Jewish people Yom Kippur. It is a day that it's on the... Uh, 10th day of the 7th month of their calendar. And it has been called the Good Friday of the Law, and it has been called the Gospel according to Moses. You see so much Gospel truth in this day that it's my joy <laughs> to come to this chapter with you. You know, you, some people try to read through the book of Leviticus and they say, oh, forget it. I just can't make it through. It's so boring. I just can't wade through this book. Well, if we see with spiritual eyes, when we come to chapter 16, we're going to see so much in here that will delight your soul, honestly. So let's take a look. There are three things I want you to see Christ foreshadowed in. The high priest, the scapegoat, and the mercy seat. Okay, so let's take a look at first the high priest. Aaron, the high priest. And the first thing I want you to notice is that the high priest was humbled on the Day of Atonement. If you look at Exodus 28, verse 2, if you don't have to take a look there if you don't want to, I'll read it to you. It's Exodus 28, verse 2. It tells us about the garments that the high priest was to wear. Exodus 28, 2 says, You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Now, Oleg has put up a picture for you. This is what the high priest would normally wear. And it's beautiful, isn't it? He's got a, a turban with this band of pure gold around his head. And on that, that band, it says, Holy to the Lord. So this high priest was to represent holiness unto the Lord. And then he has this breast piece with 12 special precious gems. And these gems represented the various tribes of Israel. And on his shoulders, he also had the names of the 12 tribes engraven. So they were upon his shoulders and upon his heart when he went in to minister before the Lord. And he had this special um, linen um, tunic and then the outer robe. And then at the bottom of the robe, there were these little pomegranates and bells that would jingle. It was a very beautiful and glorious garment. 
that he would usually wear. But Oleg, would you put up the next one? This is how he looked on the Day of Atonement. He took all of his usual garments off, and he bathed in water, and he put these garments on. And every single garment here was made of linen, pure white linen. If you look at it, Leviticus 16, verse 4, it says, He shall put on the holy linen tunic, and the linen undergarment shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash, and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. The high priest on this special day sets aside the garments of glory and beauty, and he puts on these garments of humility. All it was is just white linen. Nothing special about that. Of course, linen, white, represents the holiness of Jesus Christ. But don't you know there was a time when Jesus in his glory was willing to set aside that glory and become a man. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. I mean, think about it. Going from God, pure God, where he's worshipped by all the hosts of heaven, to come down and be born in this world, not in Taj Mahal, but in a stable. And that, that's hum, humility enough. But he just keeps lowering himself all the way through his life till he gets to the very lowest he can go by dying the accursed death of a cross. Anyone put on a tree, the Bible says, was, uh, was cursed. And Jesus took God's curse for us, lowering himself as far down as he could go. So you see the humility of the high priest here, and you see the humility of Jesus Christ as our high priest when he goes through the ritual of providing atonement for sin. Now, we find this expounded for us over in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Let me read this to you. Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Why did Jesus have to be made just like you and I? Because he couldn't be a merciful and faithful high priest if he didn't, and he couldn't make propitiation for our sins if he didn't. God had to become a man if he was going to save man. So we see, first of all, his humility. And notice that the high priest was still the high priest, even though he was only clothed in this white linen. Right? He was still the high priest. And Jesus is still God, even though he appears in human flesh. When we talk about the incarnation, we're not saying that Jesus stopped being God and changed into a man alone. We're saying that God remained God, but assumed to himself another nature. So now we have an individual with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, fully God, fully man at the same time. Now, not only was the high priest humbled on this day, he was also purified. It's interesting, as you read through Leviticus 16, you're going to find him taking baths on several occasions. <laughs> he has to bathe his body and then put on clothes and then take the clothes off and bathe himself and put on other clothes. You, you find that as you read through it. For example, let me give you a few. We looked at Leviticus 16.4, but there, at the very end, it says, Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on, put on the linen clothes. Or take a look at verse 23 and 24. 
Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth. And he's bathing a second time. And not only that, but he had to offer animal sacrifices for himself before he could offer sacrifices for the nation. Look at verse 11. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. And by all of these rituals, you see that the high priest had to be pure before he could go into the presence of God. His body had to be clean. His sin had to be covered by the death of an innocent animal before he was ritually purified to the place where he could appear before God's presence in the Holy of Holies. Now, what does that tell us about Jesus Christ? You see, all of these rituals are telling us something. They're pointing to something. They're telling us that we have a high priest that was absolutely perfectly spotless in all things. That he was, you know this, I'm sure already, but Jesus Christ never sinned. In fact, he committed acts of righteousness throughout his entire life, and those acts of righteousness are put to our account when we believe he was the perfect high priest. Notice what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 7, verse 26. He says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, and notice how he describes him, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. There has never been anyone like him. The holiest man who has never lived pales into insignificance compared to the beauty and holiness of Jesus Christ. He's matchless in His holiness and His beauty. He's our high priest who wore all linen, all righteousness, so that th that righteousness could be put to our account. Third thing about the high priest was that he performed the work alone. He performed the work alone. He had to do everything on this day. Now, normally, the ordinary priests would do the work of the tabernacle. They would light the lamps. They would replace the table of showbread. They would offer the sacrifices. All the ordinary priests had a day off on the Day of Atonement. In fact, the whole nation had a day off. All of them were required to do no work on this day. But there was one individual that didn't have a day off, and that was the high priest. He worked his tail off on this day. He worked hard. And most commentators believe at the end of the chapter where it says that they were to afflict themselves or humble themselves, that that's referring to a day of fasting. It's not explicitly stated, but it seems to be implied that the whole nation was to afflict themselves by fasting on this particular day out of the year. So if you can imagine, here's a man who's not eaten anything, but he is working. I, I read a sermon by Spurgeon on the Day of Atonement, and he had counted 15 different animals that the high priest alone had to slaughter and offer up I mean, just for me to slaughter one goat or something, I would probably take all my strength. But here, 15 animals on one day. So he had a lot of work to do. And he had to do it by himself. Notice verse 17 of Leviticus 16. There it says, When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out. 
that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. And as you go through this chapter and read it, you're going to notice things like, well, verse 2, Tell your brethren Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen turban. And as you keep reading throughout the chapter, everything is about what Aaron does. No one else does anything. Now what is that telling us? It's telling us that our salvation has been wrought out by Jesus Christ and by Him alone. It's telling us that our salvation is 100% what Christ has done and 0% what you and I do. Now, I believe this also even includes our acceptance of the gospel because that requires faith. And where does faith come from according to Scripture? From God. Romans 1.29 For to you it has been granted not only to suffer for his sake, but also to believe in his name. It's, it's granted to us to believe in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. So even our acceptance of the gospel, trust in Christ, comes by the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ as our high priest, making atonement for sin. Jesus paid it all. All. To him I owe. Sin had, sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Now, as a young Christian, I believe, okay, yeah, Jesus provided salvation and he made it available to everybody, but it's up to you and me to accept it or to reject it. That's our part in, in salvation. And for about 12 years of my Christian life, that's what I believed. And I slowly began to think about that more and more, reading the Bible more and more, studying more and more. And finally, I rejected that idea because I don't think it's biblical. I, I think what is biblical is that even our acceptance of the gospel comes to us by the grace of God. H how is it that you had a heart that embraced the gospel and your neighbor or your best friend or your sister or your brother didn't? You both sat in the same church. You both heard the same words from the preacher. One was touched and the other wasn't. Are you going to say that I was a little better than them? And that's why I embraced the gospel? Was my heart a little softer than theirs? No, we're, the Bible says all of us have hearts of stone. We're all born dead in sin. It's God's grace that opens the heart like it did to Lydia in chapter 16 of the book of Acts. And the Lord opened up her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. George Whitfield, who I got to speak to you about at our camp, this is a statement that he made. Man is nothing. He hath a free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven. And do you believe that? The man's free will will never take him to heaven because his will, if we are to be honest with it, his will is bound to his nature. And God must change the nature before the will can choose anything other than the nature he was born with. So we are entirely dependent upon the mercy of God. So the high priest performed all the work, and he performed it alone. He didn't ask for the help of junior priests. He did everything. And God isn't asking for your or my help to save ourselves. He, he will save us, and he'll do all the work by himself. And to him deserves all the glory, all the honor. Another thing to notice about the high priest is that he represented other people. The high priest represented 
the whole nation of Israel. The atonement depended upon one man. If that man failed, the rest of the nation's guilt would remain upon them. And you, can you sense how nervous and fearful the people might be that the high priest might not fail in any point of his duty on that day? Because if he failed, maybe their sins would not be removed. Maybe the guilt would be remain upon them. And so in, in trepidation, and fear, they watch the high priest as he goes into the tabernacle and hope against hope that everything comes out okay. Because that man represents the entire nation and all of the hopes of the nation rest in what he does. Now, that's exactly the way salvation works. It works on the basis of representation. When God looks down at the human race, in a sense, he only sees two individuals. Can you name them? Who are the two individuals that God sees? Adam and Christ. Everyone in this world is either in Adam or in Christ. Either you're being represented by Adam or you're being represented by Jesus Christ. What each of those persons did is put to the account of the people that they represent. Now, Adam represented the entire human race that descended from him physically, who are born from him physically, every individual. So he represents me. He represents you. Jesus Christ represents everyone who is born from him spiritually. So everyone who has been born again has a different representative, and that is Jesus Christ. So what did Adam do? He sinned. He fell. He disobeyed God. And so his disobedience is put to the account of all of the people that he represents. That's what we mean by original sin. That the sin of Adam is put to the account of the human race. That we are born with sin against us. Even though maybe that little baby hasn't done anything yet of himself to sin, he still is born under the guilt of his first father, Adam. And you say, well, gosh, that doesn't seem fair. Why would I... Be guilty for something that I never did. That Adam did that. I didn't do that. Why am I? Why would God do that to me? Why would He hold me responsible for what Adam did? And it makes sense, doesn't it? In our human way of looking at it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem fair. But you know, it, it's also not fair for you to get the righteousness of Christ put to your account. You had nothing to do with His righteousness, and yet His righteousness is put to your account. You are damned in the same way you were saved by representation. Not by what you do, but what someone else did. Adam sinned. It's put to the account of the human race. Christ achieved righteousness, and that is put to the account of a different race, a different holy nation, the church, the elect of God, who believe in His Son. His righteousness is put to their account. It's kind of like two basketball games, if you can try to envision this with me. Let's say that I'm on a team and, you know, there's five of us, and we're playing another team, and every time we shoot, we miss the basket, but what do we find? It's a, the, the referee says, it's good, two points. Okay, we keep playing, we keep missing baskets, and the referee keeps saying, two, good points. And every time the other team makes a basket, he says, doesn't count, no points, now, if, if you were in a basketball game like that, and every time, every time you missed it, it was, it was, it was put to you, 
you were given the two points, and every time the other team made a basket, it was erased, what would you start to think? What's wrong with that referee, <laughs> right? This guy's a crook. Has he been bribed? Is someone paying him off so that we can win this game? But then you start to notice, oh, there's another game going on over here, right next to this one. It's like two gyms right next to each other, and there's two games going on side by side. And God has his eye on this other game over here. And in this other game, Jesus Christ is playing all alone. There's not five men, there's one. And he's sinking basket after basket after basket after basket. He never misses a shot. But yet, no points ever go up on his scoreboard. All of the points he's making are going up on the other game scoreboard. Our team is getting all the points that he's making over here. And, and the, the other team that's playing against Jesus, Jesus is blocking all their shots, knocking them down. Basically, what's happening on the points scored against me are not counted against me. And the points that we miss are counted to me as if I had made them. All that Jesus is doing in this game over here is transferred to us over here. And all the mistakes that we're making in failed shots are transferred to Jesus over here. That's kind of like what imputation is, the doctrine of imputation. That's what it means for his righteousness to be placed to your account and your sin to be placed to his account. This great transfer takes place at the cross. Representation takes place. Christ's righteousness is put to those he represented and he assumes the guilt that they have actually committed. That's what the word surety means. A surety is someone who becomes legally responsible for the debts of somebody else. Jesus is our surety. He became legally responsible for your and my debts. And when we talk about debts, we're talking about sin. You know, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We're talking about the sin we have committed. Christ became legally responsible because he came to represent a certain people, all those who would believe in him. And then another thing about the high priest is that he was also glorified. Look at verse 23 and 24. Remember that he was wearing white linen. Well, verse 23 says, Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth. So he reverts back to the garments of glory and beauty. All the white garments are gone. All the glorious garments are put back onto him. Now what does that remind you of? Doesn't it remind you of Jesus Christ? Sure, he humbled himself during his life here. He died, rose again, ascended to heaven. And do you know what the Bible says happened when he ascended back to heaven? Hebrews chapter 9 says he entered the true tabernacle in heaven. It's Hebrews 9 verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. So we're not talking about the earthly tabernacle, because that was made with hands. This one's not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
So, Christ is our high priest. He entered, uh, he entered a tabernacle, but not the one on the earth. He went back to heaven, bringing his own blood, bringing his own body that had been sacrificed for sin into the tabern, the, the true tabernacle in heaven. The one here on the earth is just a copy of this one. This is the real one. He dies, rises again, enters into that tabernacle, and one day he's going to come forth from that tabernacle back to earth. He's going to return. Now, when the high priest put on his garments of glory and beauty and came forth from the tabernacle to meet all of the nation of Israel that were waiting for him, there were these great shouts of joy and glory and praise. Ah, oh, he made it! And they're praising the Lord. Atonement has been made for one more year. When Christ comes back from the true tabernacle in heaven, there's going to be great shouts of joy and rejoicing and glory from believers. And there's sh shouts of shrieking and terror from unbelievers because they're going to realize that that great day of the wrath of the Lamb has come. Unbelievers will be judged and damned, and believers will be saved and enter into the kingdom of Christ on that day. He came the first time as a meek lamb. He's going to come back as a roaring lion to devour his enemies. So there we have the high priest. And in every detail, we see him picturing and illustrating Jesus Christ for us. Now let's look at the live goat. There were two goats that were part of this ritual on the Day of Atonement. Take a look at verse 7 of Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, 7. Aaron shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Okay, so you have two goats. One is going to be for the Lord. That is, they're going to slaughter this lamb for the Lord. The other one is going to be a scapegoat. It's going to remain live. So one live goat, one dead goat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which he, the lot for the Lord fell, and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Now let's think about this scapegoat. Look at verse 21. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So step one, he took both of his hands, put it on the head of the goat. And then he starts confessing, Lord, your people have committed adultery and murder and fornication and thievery and blasphemy. And he starts naming and confessing all the sins that Israel had committed that year. And when he was done, he hands it over to this man who stood in readiness. He had been pre-selected. And this man took the goat and led it away into the wilderness. And when he got far enough away where he knew that the goat would never come back, he released him. And that goat just took off never to return back to the camp of Israel again. And what that was illustrating is a New Testament doctrine called expiation. 
Have you ever heard that term? Expiation. Now, it starts off with the two letters EX, just like exit or expel. It means to remove away from. To remove away from. So expiation is the doctrine that sins are removed away from us. This is the manward side of the cross. We're going to see the divine side of the cross later. But the manward, the manward benefits is that our sins are taken away from us and removed never to come back on us again. Expiation. Our sins are expiated. <laughs> they're removed. They're, they're sent into oblivion. Let me show you that from Scripture. Let's look at Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, how far is the east from the west? <laughs> Think about that. Now, if I said, as far as the north is from the south, then I would say, oh, okay, well, that's a finite distance because there is a north pole of the world and there is a south pole of the world. But there's not an east pole or a west pole. Right? It just keeps going around and round and round. <laughs> And so there's an infinite distance between the east and the west. What God is saying is, I'm going to remove your sins so far away that they can never, ever come back into my remembrance and never cause trouble for you again. Or go over to the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 38. Verse 17. Isaiah 38, 17. Lo, for my own welfare... I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Now that's an interesting expression. Lord, you have cast all of my sins behind your back. Now if you cast something behind your back, you can't see it anymore, right? It's out of sight. It doesn't come into your view. That's what he's saying that his sins were done. The Lord cast them behind him so he didn't see them anymore. Or go over to Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember them again. I will not remember your sins. That's a promise that God makes. Well, God is omniscient. In one sense, of course, He can't forget anything. But what He's saying is that I will never recall those sins in order to judge you for them. They're gone. Payment has been made and I've accepted the payment. You don't have to fear. You don't have to worry. Sin which causes death and judgment and hell has been removed because payment has been made. Or let's take a one more, look at one more. It's Micah chapter 7. And Micah is not easy to find, but Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. It's right after Jonah. Micah 7, 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. So this is, a, I mean, think about how deep the sea is. And taking a rock and just dropping it like five miles down into the depths of the sea. Nobody's ever going to retrieve that rock again. It's beyond getting. <laughs> and that's what the Lord is saying. You don't have to worry about this sin issue anymore. I've taken care of it. You're accepted. 
You're my beloved. Your sins are gone. I'm not going to remember them against you. So that's what the live goat, the scapegoat, was to illustrate. Sins are gone, never to come back. Expiation. But then there is a slain goat as well. Let's go back to Leviticus 16 and look at verse 15. And this is where we finally come to the Ark of the Covenant, which is what I wanted to talk to you about. Leviticus 16, verse 15. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. This was the only day that he could approach God in the Holy of Holies. If he tried to do this the day before or the day after, he would be killed. And if anybody other than the high priest tried to do this, they would be killed. And if he came in there without the blood and the incense smoke, he would be killed. I mean, it was a very dangerous thing to be the high priest. In fact, tradition says that they used to tie a rope around his leg so that if he died, they could pull him out because nobody could go in and get him. They would die. <laughs> so they would tie a rope around him, and if he happened to do something wrong and, he, and God killed him, okay, they just pull him out, wait for another year and send the next high priest and hope he did a better job than the first, you know. So the slain goat. They were to sprinkle the blood of that goat seven times in the mercy seat. Seven's the number for completion, fullness. So sprinkling seven times on top of this mercy seat here. And you can see the cherubim, their wings are outstretched. That lid on top is called the mercy seat. It was a pure gold, extremely valuable. Inside of, if you were to open up the lid and look inside, you would see the Ten Commandments. Now, how would God feel as he looks down upon this mercy seat and he looks inside and he sees the Ten Commandments that the people of Israel have been breaking again and again all year long. What response? What, what's the only righteous response that he could have to that? It would be, it would be anger or wrath. God hates sin and he's angry with the sinner all day long, the scripture says. So that's what we have here. God looking down upon the broken law and this now is a throne of judgment. It's a throne of wrath because of the sin of the people. But when he brings the blood in and he sprinkles the blood seven times on the mercy seat, this is transformed from a throne of judgment to a throne of grace. Because sin has been paid for. I said that the live goat illustrates expiation the slain goat represents propitiation. How many times have you used that word in the last week? You know? <laughs> we never use that word, but it's a Bible word. It occurs in the Bible and the New Testament four times. Propitiation. What does it mean? Propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. Let me try to illustrate this for you. Let's say I go to the shopping center and as I'm backing into my parking stall, I don't see the guy behind me, and I ram right into another car, and I get out of my car, and I go over there and look at it, and I put a huge dent in his hood. And the guy was inside the front seat. He hops out, and he's mad. He says, what are you doing? What you, you idiot, you backed right into me. 
And I could tell, oh no, what am I going to do now? This guy's really mad at me. So I open up my wallet and I've just been to the bank. And so I've got some money and I start giving him $100 bills. And by the time I get to 20 $100 bills, he goes, oh, wait, wait, that's good. Huh? You don't have to give me any more. I'm happy now. See, because the car was only worth a thousand bucks and I've given him $2,000. <laughs> He's a happy man. I have just propitiated him. I've removed his wrath by the payment of a sacrifice. God is angry with the wicked every day. Something must be done to remove his anger for sin. There's nothing that you and I can do good or big enough to remove his anger from us. Only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was sufficient to remove that wrath. But Christ is our propitiation. He himself is the propitiation. And when he goes to the cross and when he offers himself up in sacrifice to God, God is pacified. His wrath is gone and now he can welcome us in love because the payment has been made. So expiation is for us. Propitiation is for God. You say, well, why would God need a propitiation? It's because God, in order to exercise his grace, has to have his justice satisfied. God is just. He can't just say, well, I'm going to forget about my justice for right now, and I'm just going to have a mercy on a bunch of sinners. And then after that, I'll take back my justice. No, he's God. Justice is one of his attributes that's always there. He can't, it's just there. So in order for him to show mercy, he has to show mercy justly. So how can God justly justify a sinner? Think about it. How could a, a judge in a court of law justly show mercy to a rapist who's found to be guilty of rape? How could God do that? Or how could the, how could the judge do that? If, if he said, I'm just going to be merciful to you, you look like a really good guy and you're sorry for what you did, I'm just going to let you off. Everybody would be up in arms against that judge because he's a wicked judge. He did not do right. He did, he did evil in that he did not exercise justice. And our God is a God of justice. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He can't because that would be unjust. So God had to devise a scheme of redemption that would exercise justice against sin, but still allow him to bestow mercy. And that's what the propitiation of Christ is all about. He's the slain goat. His blood was shed. The perfect, righteous, holy one. His blood was shed. He, he goes to the cross and dies. And as high priest, he brings that blood into the courts of heaven and he shows the Father on his behalf. And the Father is now pacified. His anger is removed from all those who come to him through Jesus Christ. There's been a new way, a new and living way through Christ whereby we can be brought into the very presence of God. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, what exactly did that illustrate? You know, we've seen what the altar represents, the cross, the labor, the sanctifying work of Christ through the Spirit and the Word of God. So we've seen what the other things represent, but what about the ark? What does that represent? Well, let's look to a few scriptures to find out. Go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Verse 4. 
1 Samuel 4.4. 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim. That's what I want you to meditate on. It's called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim. He's sitting above it. Okay, now go over to 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 2. Second Samuel 6, 2. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. Now this one doesn't say he sits above the cherubim. It says he's enthroned above the cherubim, referring to the ark of the covenant. Or if you like, you could turn to Psalm 80, verse 1. And notice this, Psalm 80, verse 1. O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. And if we wanted to, we could see the same thing in 2 Kings 19, verse 15. So the Ark of the Covenant was God's throne. The mercy seat was the seat that he sat upon, you might say, between the cherubim. God, as sovereign ruler of the universe, sits enthroned. Upon the ark, ruler, king, majesty, master. But as I said, as he looked down upon the broken law, that throne could only be a throne of judgment. But once a year, when the blood is sprinkled upon the throne, God looks down and he doesn't see a broken law anymore. He sees blood. He sees shed blood. And all of a sudden, that throne of judgment is transformed into a throne of grace and a throne of mercy for sinners. That's what the author of Hebrews was saying. In Hebrews chapter 4, let's take a look at that quickly. Hebrews 4, verse 16. He says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. It's no longer a throne of judgment. Now it's a throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Christ is our high priest. Christ is our scapegoat. Christ is the slaughtered goat. And Christ is the mercy seat. He sits enthroned above that mercy seat. Now, two questions for you as we draw our, our study to a close this morning. The first question is, what does God require of us? If Christ is all these things, how do we actually derive benefit from him as our high priest and scapegoat and slain goat and mercy seat? Well, what did God require of the people of Israel on the Day of Atonement? Let's take a look at that. Leviticus 16, verse 29. This is what God required of them. This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work. Two things he required of them. Humble their souls. Number two, not do any work. Do you know God is requiring the exact same thing of sinners today? Humble their soul and not do any work. He said, well, Brian, what do you mean humble their soul? Repentance. Mourning for sin. Remember, 
Pastor Jerome's message on the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be covered. Mourning over the sin in our life, being brokenhearted over sin, being crushed in spirit because we've sinned against a Savior so loving and so kind. And it was my sin that put him on that cross. Every one of us needs to know that and see that and believe that. And so we, there's this affliction of soul, humility. We, we, draw, we go down low, low. We get to the feet of Jesus and we ascribe glory to him because we're sinners and we know it. So we humble our souls before him. In fact, Leviticus 23, 29 let me just read this quickly to you. Leviticus 23, 29 says this. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his people. So even though the high priest may have made atonement for you, if you would not humble your soul on that day, you're cut off from God's people. There is no salvation apart from repentance. If you refuse to humble your soul before the Lord, you will not be saved. You will be cut off. That is a requirement of any person who wants to enter eternal life, who wants to have the kingdom of God, who wants to enjoy God forever. They must humble themselves and repent, mourn for sin. What's the second thing they had to do? Rest from all their work. My friend, if you will not stop working for salvation, you can't be saved. You've got to stop. <laughs> if you're trying hard for God to finally love you by going to church and reading your Bible and fasting and praying, forget it. You're going to be lost. You're like, you're like the, uh, the Pharisee. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector went up to pray and the Pharisee was congratulating himself? It says that he was praying, but he was praying to himself. Yeah. Lord, I thank you. I'm not like all these bums and wicked people and not like that tax collector over there. I'm such a good guy. I pay tithes. I fast. I, I do all kinds of good works. I'm not an extortioner. What did Jesus say about that man who was such a good man working so hard for heaven? Who went down to his house justified? The lowly, low-down, no-good tax collector who knew he was low-down and no-good. He went home justified. In other words, he went home saved. And the Pharisee, the righteous, self-righteous Pharisee went home lost, damned still under the wrath of God, even though he thought he was such a great guy. <laughs> it's crazy. The bad man is saved. The good man is lost. If you look at it from worldly eyes and from a flesh perspective, you've got to stop working if you want to be saved. You've got to understand, I can't. There's nothing I can do to merit, to earn, to deserve this great gift. I'm going to stop. I'm just going to accept what God has done for me. And I'm going to say thank you. And I'm going to pour out my heart of thanks for this awesome gift he's given to me. I haven't done one thing for it. But I'm going to give praise to my master for having given it to me. It's given freely. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So what is the requirement? Repentance and faith. And that's exactly what we find in the New Testament. If a sinner is to be saved, he must repent and believe the gospel. Other things will follow after that, like baptism and fruit and good works and obedience. But that's what he must do initially to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. That's the first question. What does God require of us? Humble yourselves, rest from all your work. Second question is, what? but what does God do for us? What did God do for them on the Day of Atonement? Well, look at verse 30 of Leviticus 16. 
For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. That means that before this day of atonement, they weren't clean. They were, what? Where were they? They were dirty. They were filthy in the sight of an all-holy God who cannot look on sin with favor. But they were clean now. When I come home from work sometimes after doing gutter cleaning, I am so dirty. I'm filthy because I use a blower sometimes and all that dirt gets all over me. And if, if it's rained, it's even dirtier. I'm, I'm muddy from head to foot. And I come in and Debbie doesn't even want to kiss me hello because I, I'm so... <laughs> I have to go in and take a shower and wash all that stuff off. And I feel so much better. Isn't it a great feeling to be clean after you've been dirty for so long? Well, here are the people of Israel. God says... You're clean. From how many sins? What did it say? From all your sins. Not most of them, and you still have one or two that you have to do something about yourself. I've taken care of every one of them. And where? Before the Lord. Even as you stand right in the presence of God, you're clean. Even God himself, an all-holy God, can't find one speck upon you. Because it's His righteousness that He's clothed you with. God's own holiness has become yours through Christ. We find the same beautiful truth over in the book of Hebrews again. Hebrews is really a commentary on the Old Testament sacrificial system. It helps us understand it. But over in Hebrews 9 verse 12, He tells us what God did for us through the atoning work of Christ. Verse 12 ends up like this. Having obtained eternal redemption. Not a temporary one that can wear off after a few thousand years and find yourself in hell. It's an eternal redemption. The word redemption means to be set free by the payment of a price. We're set free from our sin and death and hell and judgment by the payment of Christ's price and it was not a temporary one. It was an eternal redemption. That's why in chapter 10, verse 14, I love this verse. It says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now think about this. How many of your sins did Jesus Christ pay for? All of them. Okay? I've met many people that say, Well, Christ, in fact, my, my father-in-law, I was having a talk with him, and he says, But... What happens to someone who commits suicide? They can't repent of that sin. They can't confess it. Will they go to hell? And I said, I believe that when Christ died, He died for every one of your sins. That means your past sins, the ones you're going to commit today, and the ones you're even going to commit in the future, Christ paid for all of them, for all time. <laughs> so that means if you were a true believer, if you were a regenerate, and I believe it's probably possible for a regenerate person to commit suicide. I can think of people in church history who were, um, William Cooper for one, who was a friend of John Newton, who, who wrote some of the most amazing hymns, but had these fits of deep depression. He was probably bipolar, but nobody knew how to categorize it back then. Deep, deep depression. And he, on more than one occasion, he tried to kill himself. He thought he was too far gone that God couldn't have mercy upon his soul. He probably was a genuine believer but overcome with these, this physical 
your frailties. So what would happen if a, a truly regenerate person were to kill himself? I believe that that person would go to heaven because Christ died for that sin. He died for all their sins. So isn't that relief? The, the only real question is, am I a true Christian? That's all you got to figure out. If I've been born again, Christ is Savior forever, for all time. And His work is sufficient for anything I've done, including the most horrible of sins. David committed murder. He lied. God forgave him. God can restore us from, from the sins we commit. Of course, we don't want to ever go that way. It's only going to mean misery for us. But what I'm trying to help you see is you're not beyond the mercy of God. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for you. You can rest in it. You can find comfort and peace and joy in what Jesus Christ has done for your soul. So that's what God did for you. Eternal redemption. Cleansing from every sin before the Lord. Lord, we just want to rejoice this morning in your presence as we consider this Day of Atonement because we know it pointed to Christ and what he did on the cross and how he entered into heaven for us in the true tabernacle and how he's going to come again. Lord, we will bring forth shouts of joy on that day when we see you return in power and great glory, having put on your garments of glory again. We know you took them off for a season, but then put them back on. And you are the glorious one. Lord, give us just a heart of joy this morning as we consider all that you are for us. And we give you great praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.